0: 8, and uh, we're plugging on down through here, the and back into these details here as we uh, get to the conclusion of chapter 8 of Romans, and then uh, actually really the, the end of section 2 in uh, in the book of, uh, of Romans. So let's start reading in verse 31, and then we will... Uh, Uh, get back into where we have been studying. Verse 31, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life Nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And read that just to get it into our thinking as we come into this. There are seven questions here that Paul asks as we come to the end of section two that is designed to crystallize into our thinking how we are to view life. In verse 38, for I am persuaded, and that's what he's after. That, that's the conclusion. What are we going to say to these things? That's verse 31, the first question. In order to end up where, being fully persuaded, <laughs> belief beyond doubt, I've heard it defined as a as a definition, in order to end up at the same conclusion as the Father, in order to end up at the same understanding as the Father would have us have, which, by the way, that conclusion of the Father is verse 37, and all these things, and again, these things is the context, verse 18, the suffering of the present time. Are not uh, We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. God, the Godhead looks at us as what? More than conquers. We need to look at ourselves as what? More than conquers. So how do we get there? Because when life comes in and life begins to hurl itself at us, that's not our first response. Our natural first response is, is "Woe me, wait a minute. And we tend to respond from a from a fleshly viewpoint, if you will, rather than from a divine viewpoint. And what Paul's trying to do, and by the way, if you respond from a fleshly viewpoint, that's natural. That's okay. It's, he's not saying, shame on you for doing that. He says, what if, when you do that, take a, take a minute, count to 10, as they like to say. Stop yourself and then get the proper perspective. So Paul begins here, starts in verse 31. With that first question, what shall we then say to these things? How are we going to react? How are we going to respond to life? How do we do this? And he begins to give us, if God be for us, then he lays in this for us doctrine. God, here's God, God is for us. And He's here's the way to view life. The way God wants us to view life is to view it as what God is for us. Now, and by the way, finish the verse, who can be against us? So we're going to have a for us doctrine and an against us challenge. So for every point of sound doctrine that's going to demonstrate God's intensity and his love for us, the adversary is going to have a counter to that. And there's four times he says, who? Who can be against us? Verse 33, who shall lay anything? Verse 34, who is he that condemneth? Verse 35, who shall separate us? So every time Paul lays in, here is God for us, what does the adversary do? Yeah, but. Or as he said to Eve, yea, hath God said, did God really say that? See? And it's all designed to attack your thinking. Come over real quick to 2 Corinthians 11. Wonderful little verse here, kind of tucked away in 2 Corinthians 11 that we need to think about and kind of keep in our thinking when we, we're into this. Uh, and we got through the first, we're, we're supposed to be in verse 34 today, so we'll get there in Romans 8. Look at 2 Corinthians 11, look at verse 3. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted. What's going to be corrupted? Your minds, your thinking. From what? The simplicity that's in Christ. Now, that verse tells you, Genesis 3, what got Eve off was she lost sight of her simplicity in Christ. She got looking at something else. So what is, go back to Romans 8, what is the adversary doing for us, to us? Same thing. If he can get you to not think about the for us doctrine in the present situation, in the present suffering, verse 18, you have to remember verse 26, 28, all those popular verses that we've looked at here in Romans 8, the context is, eight, is verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And we've talked a lot about that uh, and so forth. So go back down here to verse, to, to verse 31. He's for us. He's, so that issue of him being for us is not a cheerleader. You know, the ball game yesterday, they showed the cheerleaders. It isn't a being a cheerleader. It's rather he's for us by his activity of providing the necessary resources, okay, that's going to enable us to live as more than conquerors. He's for us. He's demonstrating this. He's given us the assets we need to put into our lives so that we can be a more than conqueror. It isn't yay, rah, rah, rah. He's already done that. (laughs) It's now here's the resources. And what Paul is going to do, is He's going to demonstrate the issues here of in four manners of how he's for us. The first one here is in verse 30, uh, 32. He that... <clears throat> well, it's actually in verse 31, sorry. What shall we then say to these things and to the, these things again the present suffering but the, he's referring back up to verse 28 and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them that who are the called according to his purpose he's on our side he's for us because he has an eternal purpose and we studied this we went through this that you and I are a part of. So what Paul's doing here is he's establishing the the, the measure. Here's the standard. What does God say about our future? Do you believe him about the future? Do you believe him when he says that we're called according to his purpose? Well, yes, we do, don't we? We have the word of God. We believe him. We have a future. We have a hope. Then he's going to say in verse 32 here in just a second, we'll look at it. What does he say about our past? What did he say about your past? You were a sinner and I died for you. You trust me, your sins are forgiven. You're righteous. Do we trust that? Yes. Then we should trust him about our present moment and how to get through that. you see what he's doing here? He's saying, look. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? How are we going to react? How are we going to view in light of understanding our future, called according to his purpose, the predestination? We we went all down through this passage here in verse 28, 29, and 30, and, and it's all past tense. It's all been done, but it's looking where? To the future. We trust that. We trust that he died for us in our past. Then in the moment, we need to live the same way. And literally what Paul is kind of laying out as the issue here is that old question that comes up from time to time. Is God worthy to be believed? Is he, can he be trusted? Can he be depended on? Can he? See, that's the question. That's really the bottom line here because that's what life throws at you. When the circumstances of life pop up what do we use what is a knee jerk reaction is god faithful is he worthy to believe can he be trusted can we rely with complete dependence on his faithfulness can we do that and what paul's crystallizing is yes you can look at what he's said about your past look at what he's saying about your future you trust that then why in the moment don't you trust what he says how to get through the present situation if he's worthy to be trusted the promise about our past the promise about our future then he's also worthy to be trusted about the present moment now what do we all what do you see out there in christianity well you know what Verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to them, to them that love God. So if nothing good's happening, then you don't what? Love God so he's getting you. Well, that violates like 100 verses. It violates doctrine. So the issue here is, is when the circumstances of life pop up, they can convince us that maybe God isn't reliable. Maybe he isn't trustworthy. You see what he's doing here. Paul's, hey, he is, and here's how you know it. Don't be fooled by the circumstances of life into thinking that God doesn't love you or isn't for you. He is for us, and here's the proof. Number one, he has made us a part of his eternal purpose, our future. Then in verse 32, number two, look at your past. What did he do? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Notice that. What did he do back there? Romans 5, verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners. We loved sin. What did he do? He died for us. We weren't on his side. We were against him, and yet he still went and died. He spared not. He doesn't say he delivered, but delivered him up. It doesn't say that he saved his own. He said he what? Spared not. No mercy. He didn't hold back his wrath at Calvary. He didn't pull a loophole out. The father pulled a loophole out and say, no, we're going to let him off on technicality here. No, he spared not. So, how do we? So, the question comes up then, how do we measure God being for us? Well, he provided his son as that ultimate sacrifice. He did it on the gift freely give us all things. He did it on his grace, the free gift principle. He doesn't require anything from you, he says, I've done it. Just trust me, believe me. And we do, so we, we understand that promise. Then in verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Now there's a legal charge, a charge legal here, the courtroom. Who's going to, who, the legal indictment is made. Who's going to lay the charge here? Well, obviously, he's telling us we have an adversary. There is an enemy in play. We have the adversary, the devil. We have his ministers, and then you have yourself. You, you yourself can be your own enemy because what you're thinking doing. Well, look at what's going on in life, so God's got to be against me. And now you're down that road that takes you into the bad thinking arena. The legal indictment is made here. But the answer is, Notice in verse 33, it is God that justifieth. The answer is given right there at the end of that verse. You see, the problem with the accuser of the brethren, as he's called, the problem is, is the acu- accuser has laid the charge against the wrong person. You're God's elect. All right? You, you're, you're good to go. And then he went before the wrong judge. Because God's the judge, but also God's the one that said, lay the charge to my son. You remember Romans 1 to 5? The courtroom? He says, man's a sinner. You guys are sinners, sorry. But my son over here is going to pay the price. So when the adversary comes in and says, hang on a minute... I'm laying a charge against these guys. The judge says, wrong courtroom, wrong defendant, and wrong courtroom, and throws it out. That's what that, remember in Romans over there, he's the just and justifier? That's the issue here. So no legal charge against us will alter God's eternal purpose. We're a part of it because he spared not his own son. We trusted in the cross-finished work of Christ. And now he says, you're good to go. You're dead to sin. By the way, a dead man. (laughs) Romans 6 there, dead to sin. You can't lay a charge against a dead man. Uh, Linda and I went and we were doing some estate planning. And none of it kicks in until we're both, what, dead. You know, you set it all up for the kids and their kids and the great-grandkids, and I don't know, you pr- prepare for eternity, I guess, with this stuff. But the thing is, is what happens? None of it starts until you are dead. Because when you're dead, you can't say, hang on a minute, could you imagine having a big funeral and somebody sits up, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> you know. I thought about Anyway, there's a joke in that somewhere, but uh, I'll let you, you think about that. Who? can lay the charge. We have an enemy. The charge is leveled against us. And and if you look at verse 34, which is where we need to pick up this morning, who is he that condemneth? Here's the fourth who. And the charge, and then who is he that condemneth? The issue here, in both of the charge and the condemning, is it's being leveled against us in connection to our not our position in Christ, because the adversary knows he can never get us out, but rather and it's the issue of our behavior. Uh, come over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. So the, the, the first issue in the charge... Look at 1 Timothy 5, just as an illustration of this. 1 Timothy 5, look at verse 14. Just notice Paul's talking about the the local church and how things are to be done decently and in order and so forth. And he says, I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house. Now watch, give none occasion to the adversary... To speak, how? Reproachfully. Don't let your behavior allow the adversary to get in there and speak reproach. Speak, lay the charge. Okay? Lay it out there and say, hey, wait a minute here. You're a believer and you're acting like that? See, that's his charge. That's the, that's the issue here. You, hey, you're a believer and you're behaving like that. You're a blood-bought believer and you stand in grace and all this wonderful, you know, lip service and you're out doing that? Whoa. And he lays the charge. Now, we're, in verse 34, we're going to answer that, but look at verse 15. For some are already turned aside after Satan. Look at that. There's some already, folks already doing that. Now, they haven't lost a position and who they are in Christ. Go back to Romans 8. The, so the charge here isn't going to move you away positionally, but it's rather, you know, Paul, Paul says, let not your good be evil spoken of. Provide things honest before all men. In other words, don't be a liar. Tell the truth, whether, whatever the consequence he looks at the Corinthians over there in 2 Corinthians 2 and he says you guys need to forgive that guy lest Satan take it, get an advantage get in because then wrath and bitterness and anger and all that come up. You see when he talks here about the charge is leveled against us it's in connection to our activity, our behavior, our not walking in Romans 8. Think about where we're at in Romans 8. The circumstances of life, the present suffering come up, and we instantly run to the Christianity of the world today of, well, I'm just going to pray that God will remove this. But that's not what Romans 8 says. He says he's going to help you with it. He says he's going to equip you to get through it. But rather now we're over here going, you know, only the tough when the tough gets going, the tougher get, you know, and the tough... Well, I don't even know what the saying is. I had it and I lost it. It doesn't matter. And, and you begin to fall into what is in mainline Christianity. And you know what the accuser does? That doesn't match that. So there's something wrong. That's not where you're supposed to be. In verse... You know, our... Our identity in Christ is so in complete agreement with the justice of God. That's what Paul's getting at. So when you mess up, don't fall to pieces. Recognize it, fix it, correct it, learn from it, grow from it. Why? Well, what if we, tribulation does what? Works. The suffering is designed to work for you. And we've been looking at that. Then in verse 34 here, who is he that condemneth? Again, condemneth how? He can't sit there and say, you're a sinner. You don't have your sins forgiven. Why? Because Christ has already forgiven. He spared not his own son, delivered him up. You've trusted that. You're in Christ. You're sealed. He's not condemning you that way, positionally. He's condemning you how? Practically in your walk, in your state. He's like, hey, here's, look at this. He can, we're right with God positionally. God's justice has been satisfied. Romans 1 to 5. But he can still condemn our behavior. He can say, wait a second, you say you're a believer and yet you are acting like that. Now, he's going to take it before God, the judge, and you know what the judge is going to do? He's going to do verse 34. There's going to be a dismissal of the indictment, of the charge. You see, our behavior can fall short sometime of our walk, of who we are in Christ. And that's when the accuser stands up and says, see, I got you. But you know where he does it? He does it right here. He does it in your thinking. He does it in your mindset. Now, watch the rest of verse 34, because here's the answer. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Isn't that an interesting way to fix that? (laughs) You know? Here you are. You, you got all this going on. You're being, su- you're under suffering, and instead of walking where you're supposed to be walking, in who you are in Christ, in the confidence of your identity in Romans 8. Again, this is all identification truth. We're over here wallowing in our pity party, and the accuser looks over there and says, he's not acting in there, so he's violating the word of God, so he's guilty. God God looks at him and says, hang on a minute, we've got an answer. And he's standing right here. Now, when he says, it is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. The end of that verse is where, again, we go back up there about the Spirit making intercession for us. It's, you know, he's not intervening, There's an intercessory work here. The Holy Spirit's intercessory work is through the word of God working in your inner man. We looked at that. That's where he helps us. He's not changing the situation. He's not removing the problem. So then what to hear about the Son, about Christ? Well, he's not saying that every time we sin, the Son steps up to the Father and says, hang on a minute, let me clean that up a little bit. He's not cleaning up after us. He's not looking at the Father and saying, hey, cut her a little break. She's a little thick-headed. She didn't quite get that. We're working with her. He isn't saying that at all. Rather, by by the fact of the death, burial, and resurrection, he died, yea, rather, that is risen again, by the fact of the death, burial, and resurrection, and the fact that he's at the right hand of God, right hand of the Father, that that is the witness of the intercessory activity of the Lord. Not him cleaning up our mess. By the way, have you ever noticed he doesn't do that? I love talking to people, and they're like, Oh, I'm just praying that he'll help and clean. I go, How's he doing? Not too good. Well, that's because he doesn't work that way today. He works in your inner man. He's not cleaning up. He's interceding for us. And the resurrection of Christ and the fact that he's at the ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, he's, he, that is the standard. He's, he stands in our place, if you will. Now, he's not cleaning up our mess, but by the fact that he is there, is how he intercedes. Because where are you and I? Where are we? In him. He stands there for every believer. He stands there to you know. He stands there to testify. You know what? Rick is already dead, Romans six. Rick has already been raised. Rick has already been ascend, uh, risen, ascended. Ephesians two seven. Look over there, Ephesians two. Verse six, Ephesians two six. Rick is already sitting right here with me. Ephesians two six, and and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice raised, past tense. It's already done. I told you, in God's mind, Romans 4, in God's mind, all of this is done. Now, in our experience, it isn't done yet. <laughs> We're not there yet. But in God's mind, it's already been done. It's already been accomplished. That thing in Romans 6 there about, look back there at Romans 6, about being dead to sin. Uh, Romans 6, verse uh, Seven, for he that is dead is freed. We always say free from sin, but it didn't say free. It says freed. It's got a D on the end of that word. It's past tense. It's already done. You have to, and that's why the end of verse six there, that henceforth we should not serve sin. You have a choice to serve sin or not serve sin. God's not sitting there going, serve it, don't serve it. You have a choice in the matter. Rather, he says, you know what, you are freed. So in Romans 8, 34 here, you know what he's saying is, look, Rick is already there. In me, he's, the Lord Jesus Christ is literally sitting right now in our place at the right hand of the Father. One day in our experience, where will we be? We will be there in the heavenly places. We're not there right now. We're in the nasty now and now. He's there for every believer. He's placed at the right hand of God. So then the issue then is, okay, what's going on at the right hand of God, right? Come over with me to Psalms 16. You guys, I hope you're catching what Paul's doing here. He's laying in the for us truth. God is for you, not in a cheerleader manner, but he's given you the resources to succeed right now in time in life, in the present suffering, in the present evil world. And where they lie is in your identity and who you are in Christ. How did I get my identity? He spared not his son, but delivered him up. I trusted Calvary. And when I trusted Calvary, I was sealed. I was Placed, I was baptized, spiritual baptism, into the body of Christ. I have an identity now. And in that identity, I'm equipped to deal with what's going on. It's all there. It ha- you just have to do what? Access it. Bring it into life. The issue of the right hand of God is important. God is for us. His justice, His righteousness, His holiness has been satisfied because we are in Christ, that identity. Look at Psalm 16, Uh, wonderful psalm here, Psalm 16, uh, it's uh, verse 7, the significance here of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God, you're reading His mindset as He hangs on Calvary, at Calvary. Verse seven: I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night season. See that reins? What do you do with the rein? You guide it. You know, we were up at Marlin Jerry's during the week, and the horses, and you, they have you, you use a rein, use a, uh, the reins to maneuver the horses. I didn't get on a horse, but you know that's the idea. Okay, it does what? Gui- what's guiding you? He's He's given me counsel. He has given me instruction. By the way, in the night season, in Israel's program, the night season is always a time of tribulation. It's always a time of turmoil. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Think about where he's at. He's at Calvary. He's on the night season. And who is there at his right hand? The Father is. Verse 9, therefore... My heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. Look at his thinking. His heart, the, the thinking realm of your inner man, of your soul, of you. When you're thinking, he's looking at the counsel and the instruction of the Father. He's going through the night season, and his heart does what? What does his heart do? It's glad. That's Hebrews 12, verse 2. For the joy that was, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He's looking at Calvary, understanding and being instructed in the will and the, and the purpose of the Father. And what does he do? He goes right to Calvary. And he doesn't. We've looked at the prayers in the garden. (laughs) If there's a way, instantly, not my will, but thy will be done. Is there a way? Three times. And before the father can even respond, the son says, what? Not my will, but thy will be done. It's a thinking process. My heart is glad my glory rejoices, my flesh also shall rest. Think about that. His body is broken, been beat to tar, bloodied. And what does he say? I have joy. So you know what you can learn? You can learn what? You can suffer and at the same time have joy because you understand the issue of the suffering and what's transpiring and what's happening. You see, Jesus Christ chose not to be consumed with the suffering, with the rejection of the, of the cross. He was made a curse, because cursed is everyone. that ha- He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He made a choice to do that. Rather, he chose to do what? Rejoice in what God's doing. What's God doing here? What's God going to accomplish by the cross of Calvary? The, The son sits there and goes, hey, let's go to it. Let's do that. But look at verse 10. Because what maniac would say, let's go die? One that knew something, didn't he? Trusted the word of the Father. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. What did he have? When he says there, my flesh also shall rest in hope. What's his hope? resurrection what's he know he knows the what the father say he says son here's the plan before the foundation of the world here's the plan you're going to go die you're going to take care of it and on the third day i'm going to resurrect you and here's what's going to happen and etc and here's the plan here's the secret program we're going to keep this part a secret we're going to reveal all this we're going to do this we're going to do that and you know what the son says let's go let's go do it now and he's like hold on a minute we got to get there time What does he know? He knows the promise of the word of the Father is that he'll be resurrected. Verse 11. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is the fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures forevermore. Where? At the right hand. When we look at the right hand of God, what's there? Pleasures, joy, life. You know, eternal life. uh, In John, he talks about eternal life is about getting to know the Lord, to know God is what eternal life's all about. A lot of people just think eternal life is just living forever. Well, it's more than that. It's to do what? To know God. So for us in the heavenly places, what are we going to do? we're going to know God more and more and more. We're going to keep going. If we're going to do Ephesians 2, verse 7, we've got to be educated and keep growing. Look at the thing here. The same one who died our death on the cross, the same one who experienced our wrath is the one that the Father gave the position at his right hand to forevermore. So as he stands there, Come back to Romans. As he stands there, he stands there in our place. We're not there yet. He is. So in Romans 8, now I've got to get there. Hang on. Use the cheat tab. Romans 8, when he says, It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us, he says, look, the resurrection testifies that he's our intercessory. He's the one standing in our place. That's why that word intercessory, intercession, it, it doesn't, it, it's, it's a third party interceding, coming in between two parties and bringing them together. It isn't the fact of him saying, you know, just hang on a minute, we'll get Lay squared away. It isn't that. It's, hey, lay's in Christ, and because he's in me, Father, we're standing here, and we're good to go. And when the condemner comes, the adversary comes, wrong courtroom. Kick it out. You're the wrong place, buddy. Take it, you know. And by the way, you can't ever, there's no double jeopardy here. You can't bring that case. It's already been concluded. Look at chapter 6. The charge and the condemnation. In life, we look at that and we go, man, we just messed up again. And, you know, I almost sometimes feel like the Lord's just pulling his hair out. I don't have much hair to pull, but pulling it out because, wait a minute, that's not who you are. Yes, it is appropriate to be upset and to be disturbed by your sin, but your identity, where to view our perspective is to be the perspective of him. What is his perspective? You are more than a conqueror. And who you are in Christ. Have that come in. Look at Romans 6, look at verse 2. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Great question. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into what? His death? 6 3, Romans 6 3. Christ has already paid the price, it's already done. So then when the accuser comes in, verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. We're crucified with him. So in Christ, again, you can't condemn a dead man. It's done. So back here in Romans 8, 34, When he says, who is he that condemneth, what's the adversary trying to do? He's trying to get you to not be who you are in Christ. By attacking your behavior, accusing you, charging you in the realm of your walk, that is then going to cause you to come and say, you know what, maybe I ought to be doing 1 John 1.9. I got to do something, you know. He's got to, I got to what, help him. And what does that do? It nullifies grace. You didn't do anything to get saved. You ain't gonna do anything to stay saved. You ain't gonna do anything to prove you're saved. Because he, he did it all. But what does our flesh say? What's the wrong thinking say? I gotta do something. So you call me. Rick, what do I do? I'm like, what are you talking about doing? You know, this who are you? So then he says, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The last who. Again, the separation here. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Not positionally. You can't lose that. You've been sealed. But rather, it's a separating us in the sense of of not living under the consuming awareness and understanding of his love for us. That's what he just said. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? The separation is one of a state of mind. It's one of a state of our perspective, our viewpoint. And again, one of the tactics of the adversary is to come along and to cause us to come to those conclusions of, well, maybe he didn't love me. Maybe he doesn't love me. Maybe he's mad at me. Maybe he's the... And that comes from the corrupting of your mind. Bad thinking. Okay? Now he's going to list some things for us in verse 35. Notice shall. Here's the tactics the adversary is going to use to come up against you to consume your thinking. About, does God really love me? Is He really for me? Second question in the list. Verse 31, what do we say to these things? How do we think about this? How do we react to life? What's going on? How do we consider His eternal purpose? Well, if God be for us, and is He for you? Yes. Look at Calvary. Look at the resurrection. Look at the future. He's for you. Intensely, He's for you. You're valuable to Him. So the adversary says, "Yeah, but you're not behaving. You're not walking right." So then there's a natural condemnation isn't there in our thinking. And our thinking just went from who we are in Christ to okay, what did I do? Shall seven specific areas. Shall tribulation. Tribulation, that's the the it's a Personal hardship comes along. We are to, we're to conclude that when we face hardships, God doesn't love us. And if you look at religion, you plug it in, that's what they say, ultimately. Bottom line, underneath all the fancy wisdom of words, it's, you know why you suffer? Because you don't love God And God doesn't really love you. And that's what the adversary said to Satan in the garden when he says he doesn't want you to be as gods. He says, listen, God's holding back on something over here that he doesn't want you to know. If you join me, guess what? I'll tell you what he's not telling you. And Eve said, that's what I want. Change the thinking shall tribulation or distress, distress, personal anxiety, Uh, no way to escape. And what does that do? It begins to hone in down and just begins to beat on you. And you you get to that point in your thinking where if God loved me, he wouldn't allow this to happen. And you know what? As soon as you say that, you've thrown Romans 6, 7, and 8 out the door because you've left your identity and you're over here trying to work in the energy of your own flesh. Shall persecution, uh, per, uh, personal assault. come? Someone comes along and there's personal assault. And again, Paul's giving categories here of, of where the adversary is going to come in and try to consume our thinking and put it in the wrong category shall famine or famine or nakedness personal economic hardship you understand that you have you 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 you, 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 economic pressures living paycheck to paycheck absence of physical stuff absent no clothes down hard you know what hey If anything showed us with COVID 2020, there's personal hardship there for some, economically. And what did it cause? It caused a lot of believers to go right over the edge. Because if God loved me, he would protect me from the COVID. And then when they got sick from COVID, related illness, then what happened? Well, God doesn't love you, or you didn't give enough money, or you this, and now you're down all of this guilt-ridden trail, and the Lord's sitting there going, come back, come back. And that's what Paul's doing. Peril, or peril. Societal hardships. When a, the dangers of everyday life in a present evil world when a believer finds himself in a society and a culture that is anti-God. Now we don't have that too much in the past in this country, but it's coming. And you see that. But you think about China and India and over in the other parts of the world that are anti-God. No Bible. Can't do this. You got to go under underground. When you find that that's peril. Then he talks about or sword. And that's the organized government. That's governmental hardship. That's the oppression from the government. And in Romans 13, Paul will deal with the governmental issue. But he says, hey, look, you you can come up against some hard things here. And when you do, you need to have your thinking to be proper. So you got tribulations, the pressures of life. By the way, the pressures of life are common to all men. You're not special. You're not anything. Out. Then you have distresses. You got no way to escape. You've got the persecution. That 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 personal attack. You've got the economic pressures. You've got the just the dangers of everyday life, the peril. And then you've got the government on your neck. Back in uh, the early 2000s, when they were uh, battling over defining marriage in in the sector out there, someone asked me, "Well, what are you going to do if they tell you you got to do, you know, you got to marry same?" I said, "Well, then I'm not going to do it, obviously. Yeah, but what do they do to your 5013 c stat?" I said, "They can have it. <laughs> we'll do something else. It's okay, you know. But and why? Because you just you're not going vi- to let God be true, and every man a liar." We're going to follow with God's word. And so you can, get, you can deal with those. But, you know, you got to do it with the proper perspective. Now, verse 36, we don't have the time to really get into it. We will next time. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Who looks at you that way? Who looks at you as a sheep counted for the slaughter? The adversary does. How should you look at yourself? Verse 37. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. See how Paul, he loves you so much, so intensely that he's provided the necessary equipping so you can get through the list of verse 35. Then in verse 38, he brings in a whole nother list And this list is going to catch anything out there that can come up against you. He's going to say death. Look at that. That neither death, boy, that ultimate end, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities and powers, nor things present, nor things to come. He's going to come in and begin to lay in all these things about the out there in the heavenly places because where do we impact? The heavenly places. We're looking at it in Ephesians 3.10, that intent, that impact into the heavenly places. But back in 35, you know, we live in a wonderful country. You need to be thankful that we we live here. Even though we we see it falling apart, the world is still trying to come here. You know, they're still beating beating it across the border. One day it might not be so free. So when those days come, we need to have what? Proper perspective. And the point here, these are the categories that are going to lead us to think wrongly about his intense love for us. You see, we can be victimized by destructive thinking in these areas. These are the areas that the adversary is going to bring up and come up and use to cause you to think, he he's not on my side anymore, I've messed up, he doesn't love me. And that's going to then separate me from the wonderful things that I have in Christ. Follow that practically. Not positionally. Positionally, you never lose it. But in our walk, oh my goodness, we instantly can go. And you know what that causes? That causes fear. When Paul over there, Timothy says, he hasn't given us the spirit of fear. What comes from fear? Improper thinking. And then you begin to operate in fear. And if you operate in fear, you know what you're going to do? You're going to become separated from the love of Christ. And if the love that God has for you doesn't compel you, doesn't grip you, doesn't comfort you, doesn't strengthen you, doesn't lead you to grow, then you know what? You're operating in fear. Fear of losing something that You were never destined to lose to begin with. That's what the adversary does. By the way, we're to operate how? By faith, not by fear. And that's the point here. Paul, he's been laying out here's your identity. You're, you're dead to sin. You're alive to God. You're dead unto the law. You're alive under grace. You're alive to, through Christ. You're dead to the flesh, Romans 8, but you're alive and you got the Holy Spirit and you got this intercessory working going on in your life as you take the word of God in. And now you're going to go live life on this planet earth because God left you here. So there's a consequence coming your way. And it's a consequence of the sin curse that he placed on the earth. And as that goes, you things are going to come in life and you need to know that You've got a hope. You need to you know you got a helper, and by the way, you need to know that God loves you. He's for you, but you also have to know there's an adversary that's going to come up and cause you to question your hope, to question the help, to question the love, and it's all and he's, how he's going to do it is in the realm of your thinking. The circumstances of life are what? Common to man. Life is life, but how you perceive it and go through it is the issue. And he's going to use the, this list in verse 35 to get in there. So when he says we're not to be ignorant of his devices, here are some of his devices. What's he going to do? He's going to use present hardships and distresses and anxiety and pressures of life. He's going to use that because what does our flesh say? Well, if God loved me, then why am I doing? Why why am I going through this? But your inner man says you're going through this because Romans eight eighteen said you're going to go through it. Does it follow that, okay? Now, in verse 36, again, just for the time, we'll pick up in verse 36 in two weeks. I won't be here next week. Uh, The guys will be covering, because we'll be in Minnesota for a Bible conference. But don't, don't lose sight of the fact that who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The end of verse 37, through him that loved us. The end of verse 39, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You never lose him, but we can sure put it in our brain that what? We lost him. And Paul's like, no, you haven't. This is who you are. This is all identification truth. This is all of, you had, you got all of this the moment of your justification. It's done. Now we just have to go live in it, okay? All right, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for, the instruction here in our identification and the truth and in the for us doctrines and in the making us aware of the challenges that come. And Lord, I just pray that we would take to heart the instruction so that in our lives we're answering and handling things properly. And we're answering things that uh, will bring you honor and praise and glory. In your name we pray. Amen.